2004 Chevy, black Chevy Tahoe parked in front of the fire hydrant out here. Um, the police officer has kindly come in and offered you grace. If you'll get out there now and move that thing, lest you be ticketed. So if that is your uh, car, you, you will be ticketed or worse. Um, which reminds me, we periodically get calls from our neighbors complaining about our parking habits. Um, there really is no need for you to park on any of the side streets off of the main street in Cimarron. I know that's legal. It's not appreciated by the neighbors. Um, you can park at what used to be the well. You can park at the Hickson Orthodontics office, the other side of the well. There's about 50 spaces over there, and you don't have to cross Main Street. But there are a number of spaces across Main Street as well that you can park. But in the name of loving our neighbors, don't block driveways, don't park in front of fire hydrants, and uh, take advantage of this safer parking over here with a well and the orthodontics office. They've allowed us to park there on, on Sunday morning. So that is much appreciated, and I hope whoever the owner of the Tahoe is heard me. So... Uh, you can open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians. We are studying that book together on Sunday mornings. Um, chapter 6. Corinth, if you've been tracking with us, was a struggling church. A lot of issues. Division. They allowed really heinous sin to go on unchecked in their church. Um, they were dragging each other to court over civil monetary issues, as Jeff taught us a couple weeks ago. But today in chapter 6, Paul's addressing another great concern he has for the Corinthian church, and that is that they had fallen into sexual immorality. Um, Corinth, uh, at some level, was renowned for this. They're, they actually, to Corinthianize, meant like to go carousing and be involved in illicit sexual behavior. Uh, that was kind of the reputation of their uh, culture. Gordon Fee, however, says that sexual sin was undoubtedly there in abundance, but it would have been of the same kind that one would expect in any seaport where money flowed freely and women and men were available. So it's a problem in the Corinthian culture, but what Paul's troubled by is that the church had begun to participate in that as well. There were actually people going off to visit prostitutes, evidently, who were part of the Corinthian church, and they thought it was okay uh, for a variety of kind of twisted up reasons that we'll, we'll touch on as we go through this this morning. Um, but they thought it was no big deal uh, to fall into sexual immorality. And even though um, we're hardly a port city here in Raleigh, you need to know that uh, these matters press on us, us very much as well. Uh, several years back, Channel 11 reported uh, quoting the U.S. attorney, Frank Whitney, at the time, he said, we're finding a relatively sophisticated organized network of illegal aliens that have been brought into Raleigh for the purpose of prostitution. He is prosecuting people charged at the time with operating three local brothels in Raleigh. He says, people are brought here and forced in basically a house that's serving as a prison. There are armed guards out front. Their rooms are locked. They're being forced into prostitution. The girls know that if they try to escape, they might be violently assaulted. He says it's slavery in the eyes of the law, and the U.S. US Department of Justice will prosecute it as human trafficking and sex trafficking. According to federal court papers obtained during the, the investigation the news channel was doing, the brothel operators also lure local girls 
who have run away from home. One of them was just 14 years of age. According to a federal law enforcement source, uh, they believe there could be 80 brothels like these operating in our area. We don't live in Corinth, but you can if you want to. And today, in this room, too many of us are. If, if the statistics hold true, and I pray that they do not, of the people between the two services in this room today, 65 of us have had sex with someone other than our spouse this week. 65. 130 of us have looked at pornography this week. Welcome to Corinth. Paul in 1 Corinthians is teaching from about seven different angles how to be free from this. He's not just rebuking, though there's a rebuke here. He is teaching the things that we need to hear, the church then need to hear, and the church now needs to hear, to be free. Today, um, I don't really care if you take notes and can recite all seven of the things that Paul's, the different angles Paul's teaching on the practice or the subject of being free from sexual immorality. I care deeply that you grasp, recognize, treasure, memorize, and apply the one, maybe the two, that are going to save you. Okay. So as we walk through these together, um, God is bringing you a way to be free today. I want you to listen for it, and I want you to seize it, and I want you to walk out of here, and I want you to live it. Okay. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd be kind to us today, that you would bring truth to us that sets us free, set the captives free today by your word and the powerful ministry of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me time out for just a second here. Let me fix this. I have grown a cord underneath my podium. There we go. That's better. Um, Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Start in verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. If you'll notice in this translation and in a number of your Bibles, it's put in quotes, everything is permissible for me. That's because what seems to be happening here is that Paul is countering a saying or a belief that the Corinthians held that they'd gotten out of balance. There's a measure of truth to it, but they haven't captured the whole truth. So they are saying, everything's permissible for me as a Christian. I'm free in Christ. And Paul is saying, now, not everything is beneficial. There's great freedom in Christ, but it is limited by the law of love. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Paul will later say in Philippians, consider others as more important than yourselves. Our freedom 
is constrained by the benefit it gives to others. It's constrained by love. And at the risk of being Captain Obvious this morning, let me just say it very plainly. Sexual immorality is not beneficial to anyone. They did a study in New York City. Roughly 26% of New York City prostitutes um, resorted to prostitution to serve their addiction to hard drugs like crack cocaine and heroin. 90% of those prostitutes had to give away at least one child to protect to Child Protective Services. It's not beneficial. It is not. Another, sto- another study said 83% of New York City prostitutes reported that they have been threatened with a weapon. Every week, more than 20,000 images of child pornography are posted online. It's not beneficial. I mean, do you think that your um, perusing of porn benefits the daughters and the sons who are abused and photographed and have their pictures put online for you to enjoy? Do you think it benefits them? This is the fruit of participation in sexual immorality. Daughters and sisters and sons and brothers are enslaved and brutalized for a moment of your pleasure. It is not beneficial. It is devastating for the victims. And all sexual immorality has a victim somewhere in it. Maybe even you. It is not beneficial. It is devastating. And contrary to some uh, popular uh, teaching on this in our culture, porn is not beneficial to your marriage ever in any way, it will suck the life out of your marriage. Like few things that I've seen, uh, the Family Research Council did a study on this, and they say that pornography corrodes the conscience, promotes distrust between husbands and wives, and debases untold thousands of young women. It is not harmless escapism, the study author says, but relational and emotional poison. They, in this study, cited the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. And those lawyers indicate that 68% of divorce cases involve one party meeting a new paramour over the Internet. 56% involved one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 56%. It is not beneficial It is not beneficial to your marriage. It is devastating to those involved. It will be devastating to your family if you do not get free from it. God is bringing to light this morning a perspective that you need to hear. Listen well. These practices, whether internet porn or an emotional affair at the office, will destroy your family if left unchecked. By unchecked, I mean unacknowledged and unrepented of. Paul is way understating when he says it's not beneficial. But that's the first thing he has to say. It's not beneficial. It's devastating. The rest of the verse, he says, everything is permissible for me. Again, he quotes them. He says, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
sexual immorality endeavors to enslave you. It will master you. Affairs are extremely difficult to end. The snare is set very deep. Pornography viewing is extraordinarily hard to stop. Marilyn uh, Layden, she's the co-director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Cognitive Therapy, testified before a Senate, Senate Commerce Committee, and she called porn the most concerning thing to psychological health that I know of existing today. She says, pornography addicts have a more difficult time recovering from their addiction than cocaine addicts since coke users can get the drug out of their system, but pornographic images stay in the brain forever. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. That teaching is as old as Genesis chapter 4. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. In 2006, kind of a poster boy for this, is a Russian man named Vladimir Vilosov. He specially designed his own coffin to accommodate his vast collection of pornography. He said, the girls in those magazines have been my companions for years, and I want them to accompany me to the next life. Sexual immorality wants to enslave you. And it will if you keep it secret and don't repent well. If you keep letting it or her or him hang around. Jesus said well how we need to deal with sin. And it applies wonderfully to what we say today. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For some of you today, it's plucking time. It's time for you to be free. You need to heed your Savior's advice so that you can be free. Back in our text in verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. This is um, kind of complicated at the start because they don't know exactly where to put the quotes. They don't know where the Corinthians stop and where Paul starts. Um, But what they may have been arguing here is that as food is to the stomach, so sex is to the body. It is all going to perish, so what does it matter? It's just the body. It's going to perish. What does it matter? And Paul, though, makes his point clear. It matters. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body, your physical body, is meant for the Lord. It is for the Lord. Um, This body, as we'll see in a couple of verses, is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And these are mutually exclusive choices. We offer our body for the Lord or we surrender it to sexual immorality. They're not compatible. Your body, 
This is the third thing Paul's pressing on us, is for the Lord. So it matters what you do with your body, especially what you do with your body sexually, because it's to honor the Lord. He goes further here and he says, not only is your body for the Lord, but the Lord is for your body. The body's not neutral. It's not irrelevant. God is for your body. And he demonstrates that because he's go- as he raised the Lord from the dead, he's going to raise us. He's going to raise our bodies f- from the dead. We believe as Christians in a bodily resurrection. There's a creed that's been cited for now thousands of years, the Apostles' Creed. We don't say it often here, but many of you are familiar with it. Part of it goes like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. See, God is not just concerned about your soul. He's concerned about you, all of you, including your body. We don't save souls. We save people. God has redeemed all of you, including your body, and your body is for him, for his honor, not just for your pleasure. What you do with your body sexually matters. It matters to God. Your body is for him. It is to honor him. It continues in verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Paul says, you are united with Christ in your body. In a mysterious but very real sense, Paul reminds us that we are united with Christ in such a way that if we have union with a prostitute, we are joining the body of Christ to that prostitute in that act. Think about that. And on principle, I'm sure we can broaden it and say, when you look at porn, you are engaging Christ in that act. If you are having sex outside of your marriage, you are engaging Christ in that act. If you're single and having sex with your date, you are engaging Christ in that act. So much for casual sex. You are united with Christ in a mysterious and sacred way such that you involve Him in your sexual practices. If you lacked incentive when you came in this room to put aside your sexual sins, surely now you do not. If you love Christ your Savior, how can you involve Him in this kind of smut? This should give us pause when we face sexual temptation. Actually, it should stop us dead in our tracks. In his book, The Obedience Option, David Hegg illustrates what he calls overwhelming faith. 
he was talking to a young man who claimed that he couldn't stop his pattern of sleeping with different women. The young man knew it was wrong, but also claimed that his sexual lust was inevitable. Therefore, it wasn't his fault, especially since God had created him with such strong desires and urges. A common uh, position to argue these days, God made me this way, so it must be okay. So Heg is listening to this guy, and he interrupts him and says, Suppose I came into your room and caught you and your girlfriend as you were starting this inevitable process. Suppose I took out 10 $100 bills and told you that they were yours if you stopped. What would you do? The young man quickly said he'd rather have the cash. And so Heg asked, So what happened to the irresistible force of lust? And then he says this, We both realized a very simple truth. One passion may seem irresistible until a greater passion comes along. Succumbing to sexual sin is indicative of a vulnerability or an apathy in your love for God. Fuel your love for God by doing that may be your greatest defense against sexual immorality, that your love for God, for Christ, is so great that you would not involve Him in these practices because we've just learned you're united with Him in such a way that He is involved. The greater our love for Him, the more we don't want to engage Him in those kinds of practices, whether watched or participated in. Fuel your love for God by meditating on the scriptures that teach about his love. Okay. Read books like Love Beyond Reason by John Ortberg or Hunger by God for John Piper, which Jeff Doyle recommends highly. You are united with Christ in your sexual practices, Paul says. He continues on. In verse 18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Um, This sin, in a way that others do not, harms your body. It's against your body. Some say we see vestiges of this in sexually transmitted diseases, but I think Paul probably had in mind more just the union that we are creating with people who are not Christ and doesn't honor Christ when we participate in extramarital sexual activity. Our bodies are not being offered to Christ, but to a prostitute or to an adulterer or to an adulteress. This sin has significant consequences against your body, Paul says, and you do not want to experience those. He goes on in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? It's another angle he's taking with us. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in a way that remains quite mysterious, the very Spirit of God is in you in a way that he's not in an unbeliever. Just like the church is to be the temple of God in the city, so your body is a temple of the Spirit as well. You are a temple, Paul says, of the Spirit. One writer points this out. He says, the term used in this passage for temple is not the word for a pagan temple or even for the Jewish temple structure and grounds. Rather, it refers to the holy of holies, the most sacred place for the people of God in the Old Testament. 
This is the place where the presence of God is most manifest on earth, in the temple, in you. And Paul's not talking about us collectively now like he did early in Corinthians. He's talking about you individually. In your body, God manifests himself by his spirit in the most vivid way that he can on this planet. He goes on and says, you would probably never consider committing an act of sexual immorality in a church sanctuary, right? But the fact is, as disgusting as that would be, it would be no worse for a Christian than committing the same sin anywhere else. A church building is never called a holy of holies, but the believer's body is. We defile something far greater in sexual immorality than a building. We defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is not just some mental trick, okay? like pretending your date is Jesus. Okay? It's not like that. Your date is not Jesus, helpful as that strategy might be. Um, but you really are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is not wordplay. You are. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, we're bumping up another one of the great mysteries of the church. We're united with Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us. These things are to protect us from falling headlong into sexual immorality. They are safeguards for us. And Paul closes out this section with one last angle on this that he wants us to take. He says, you are not your own, verse 19. You were bought at a price. Therefore... Honor God with your body. You have been bought with a price. Peter elaborates on this. He says, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You are not your own. You now belong to Christ. He has purchased you at the greatest of prices, his own blood. So we no longer have controlling rights over our body. He does. And to take our body and give it over to sexual immorality of any sort is to deny his lordship of our bodies. It is a tragic, selfish, thankless attempt to reclaim our rights over our body and to deny the price that was paid for us on the cross. It's a denial of the cross. To embrace sex outside of the will of God, even just in our thoughts, is to deny the intent of the love of Christ on the cross for us. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. All of these angles, Paul is assembling to press us towards honoring God with our bodies sexually. It matters. Our bodies were purchased for him at great cost. These beliefs Paul is teaching to the church then and we are teaching now because they are what we need to believe to be free. Which one of these seven different angles that Paul brings to bear on this is your, your priority belief that you must treasure, believe, memorize, meditate on? and apply. Which is yours? What's the top one? Which passage, which verse out of this text is the one that you have to implement to save your life? 
from sexual immorality. Paul closes with two important practical mandates for us at the close of this passage. We've already read them. First one, flee from sexual immorality. Sometimes the scriptures urge us to stand and fight, but in this battle, the command is to flee. You know what it means in the Greek? Flee. (laughs) Run away. Get away. Stay away. Don't go near. Get out of here. Save yourself by fleeing. Um, Just off the coast of southern Australia, there was a research pen full of tuna held captive for a study on feeding patterns. Um, Everything was working well with the study until a 13-foot, 1,500-pound great white shark decided to enter the pen and grab a bite to eat. They're not sure how he got in, if he jumped the seven-and-a-half-foot electrified fence or if he just found his way through it somehow. But the villain swam happily in his newly conquered territory and ate a few tuna. But the sponsors of the study soon discovered him and they found that the tuna had adapted to the situation. A spokesman for the South Australian Research Development Institute said, when the shark swims to the surface... The tuna swim to the bottom and vice versa. So what's the lesson of the tuna and the shark? Okay? If the shark's on the surface, you better get to the bottom. And if the shark's on the bottom, you better get to the top. Paul says it in a word. Flee. Okay? Flee. Is there a situation, a circumstance... Or a relationship that you need to flee? Honestly. Is there a circumstance or a situation or a relationship that you need to flee? Some of you are thinking of one right now and you're not exactly sure. That's the one. You should flee that one. And you flee. Some helpful steps if you're going to flee. First, tell someone you trust. Tell them this is a source of temptation for you. And you need them to pray for you that you would flee. If you are serious about fleeing, you should tell someone, someone you trust, that this is a a source of temptation for you and you need to flee. Another step, plan out what fleeing looks like for you. What would that involve? Not going here, getting the filter there, getting rid of this, not going by that magazine rack, not walking by her office or talking to him at work. What does fleeing look like for you? And then flee fully. Don't hang around the edges. Don't look back over your shoulder. Flee Get out of there. Run away. Proverbs says, don't go near her house. Don't walk down her street. Flee fully. One brother whom I greatly respect actually changed jobs to get away from a relationship that was leading him towards sexual immorality. That's fleeing. Fleeing fully. So Paul says, flee. He also says this. He says, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. 
Honor God with your body. Positively, singles are to pursue purity. Guard it, treasure it, learn to delight in it. I continue to be troubled by what people watch. Use discretion. Preview the movie. Don't watch it if you're not certain that it won't involve things that are going to trouble you and lead you into sexually immoral temptations. Raise the bar on what you watch, especially those of you who are single. Most of your standards are too low. That's just what I'm watching. Your standards are too low. Raise the bar. If you are married, and I'm choosing my words carefully, pursue passionately, gladly, the fullness of marital fidelity. Passionately and gladly pursue the fullness of marital fidelity. Love that woman. Love that man with unmitigated passion. Embarrass your children. Love them. But negatively, don't go anywhere. Don't look at anything. Don't participate in anything sexually that you don't want Jesus involved in. Your body is united with him. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What's the thing that you need to cling to that Paul has just taught us like your life depends on? Is there a circumstance or a situation or a relationship that you need to flee? Let's pray together. Father, in your kindness to us, of all days on this day, Don't let us be hearers of the word only. Strengthen us to do it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today it is our our privilege to um, conclude our time of worship with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And I know that Maybe today, more than any day, um, some of you are thinking, are you kidding me? (laughs) He teaches on that, and then we're supposed to go to the table? Um, Let's talk about that just for a minute. The table is not just for perfect folk. The criterion for the table is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ who is endeavoring to walk in fellowship with him. That is, you are repenting of your sin. Not that you had the best week ever or that you haven't sinned for a long time, but that you are willing to throw down your sin and come to the table, commune with Christ, and find the grace that you need in your time of need from Christ himself. Today it is our privilege
to celebrate and to remember and worship because of the great price that was paid for us. Um, We remember today that with His body, He redeemed us so that with our bodies, we can honor Him. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Paul says, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious Father, In your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you, in your mercy, sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the world. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus took bread and he had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this also in remembrance of me. silver and my gold not a mic 
would I withhold? Take my intellect and use every power as you Consecrated 